Better Listen presents Whatever You Say You Are, You Aren't with Robert Anton Wilson. Anatomically explicit. That's an interesting expression. What's the opposite of anatomically explicit? Anatomically implicit? I don't know. But I've been traveling around the country, and uh, for the last couple of weeks, all the newspapers are still uh, having conniption fits over the fact that Dan Quayle bought an anatomically explicit doll in Peru. <laughs> now, now, Dan Quayle is a, uh, he's a person of such transcendental mediocrity that nobody ever <laughs> would have heard of him outside Indiana if George Bush hadn't picked him uh, to be the vice presidential candidate, which Bush only did to show that he had a sense of humor. <laughs> uh, that's, a ra that's a rather obscure joke for most of the audience. I see a lot of young faces. Uh, slang changes, but I belong to the same generation as Bush. And uh, when we were young, George Bush and me, uh, back, when, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, uh, Bush uh, meant pubic hair. And, and George, uh, George uh, Herbert Walker Bush, he, he knows that, being of that age group, he knows that. He knows people make jokes about that. Well, back in that period in the 30s, 40s, early 50s, quail meant vagina. So he figured, okay, if they're going to be making jokes, I'll let them have some real funny jokes. Bush and quail, bush and quail. So every time you open the newspaper or look at television, you see bush and quail, bush and quail. And for our age group, this creates a subliminal image of a Playboy centerfold. And then you got all these people going around saying, what the hell did I vote for those idiots for? They, they, they don't know how the magic was worked on them. Uh, George uh, Bush, uh, not George Bush, Dan Quayle bought this anatomically explicit doll, and, and everybody, uh, all the newspapers are having all this hullabaloo over it, and I'm trying to figure out what is an anatomically explicit doll? Uh, newspapers uh, have a habit of not telling you what they're talking about. You've got to learn the code. Uh, like for a long time, they couldn't use the word rape, and, and you'd read stories that uh, the plaintiff uh, alleges that the defendant grabbed her from behind, strangled her, threw her down the stairs, jumped upon her, and then attacked her. <laughs> because they couldn't use the word rape. Uh, now, anatomically explicit, I think that means the doll had a big penis. But I'm not entirely sure, because they won't tell us. They just say it's anatomically explicit and leave us to work it out for ourselves. Uh, now, this would never have aroused international attention and excitement. Uh, the fact that a, uh, an asshole from Indiana bought an anatomically explicit doll in Peru, if this asshole didn't happen to be the vice president of the United States. Now it's an international news event, which goes to show what news is made out of these days. Now, now, now Quail is... Uh, a really exceptional individual. In the, in the first place, uh, as you notice if you walk around outside of people like you and me, uh, there are three other main types of people that aren't like us at all. Uh, uh, and they make up the majority. Uh, 
first of all, there are people who are just plain stupid. <laughs> As you, you, you've, you've noticed an awful lot of them, you know. Uh, and most of them work as bank tellers. <laughs> uh, a lot of them work for the State Department. Uh, uh, actually, the, the extent of stupidity uh, is something very few people realize. They just can't take it seriously. It's so enormous they can't believe in it. But as J.R. Bob Dobbs pointed out, uh, <laughs> praise Bob, uh, uh, everybody, you all know how dumb the average guy is. Well, mathematically, by definition, half of them have to be even dumber than that. Now just think about that for a minute. <laughs> and, then, and then in addition to the dumb, in addition to that crowd, then you got all sorts of people who are full of shit. <laughs> and the world is full of them. Uh, you run into them on the sidewalk every day. They're, they're on television every night blaring away at you. Uh, sports, uh, sports stars are all full of shit. You can get a sports star to endorse anything for a million dollars. You, you want to go to Molokai and collect the, the, the dung from the lepers and wrap it in tinfoil and sell it? Uh, all you got to do is pay a million dollars. I got a million dollars here, and all these sports stars will come running to endorse it. Yes, I've been eating leper shit every day for three years, and I am healthier than ever. And, 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 all the, uh, and the morons will all buy it because somebody who's full of shit told them that he's been eating it. Uh, movie actors are even worse. They'll endorse anything. You, you can get movie actors to endorse jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge. I have I've never felt so good as when I was jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, then there's politicians who are always full of shit. And uh, so we got the, the stupid and the ones who are full of shit, and then we got the ones who are absolutely fucking crazy. <laughs> there seems to be more of them all the time, right? Especially in New York unless I'm very much mistaken. I mean, you can't walk down a street in New York without somebody passing you and he's muttering under his breath, God damn, Hoover stole my vacuum cleaner. And you think, what? <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover stole his vacuum cleaner and he's still worried about it after all these years? Uh, so we've got the stupid, the, the ones who are full of shit and the ones who are batshit crazy. And uh, Dan Quayle is unique in that he's all three at once. <laughs> That, that, that's, a, that's a singular achievement for a human being to accomplish. Uh, shall I do any more, Dan? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Quail bashing is getting a bit corny, and besides, it makes me feel guilty because I grew up in that generation when quail meant something very beautiful and lovely, uh, like uh, Playboy centerfold. Uh, although I'll do, uh, besides, there's a lot to be said for quail. Uh, <laughs> Uh, his, uh, his war record, for instance. Uh, when the Viet Cong found out that he had joined the Indiana National Guard, they gave up all attempts to invade Terre Haute. Uh, I think... Uh, I think I am speaking tonight, if this is the open center, and it's uh, Friday night, and it's New York City, and I haven't gotten completely lost in my perambulations, I am allegedly speaking about uh, whatever you say you are, you aren't. Um, and 
you all had to uh, pass through a, a hall downstairs before you got onto the elevator that brought you up here, right? Or did some of you levitate up? Uh, we have some extraterrestrials here. Okay, you all passed through a hall downstairs. I'd like you to try to visualize that hall. Can't hear you down here. Okay, get another mic. I'm projecting as well as I can, but they can't hear me down there. Okay. Lights. Lights. Could we help? No. <laughs> Not yet. How many walls? One on each side. Two walls, okay. How many lights? <laughs> okay. Anything else? Another door. Anything else? Uh, the elevator. And the elevator. <laughs> With its own door. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. You made it. With a little help, uh, a little prompting, that's okay. Now, uh, those of you who've read any of my books have encountered the term reality tunnel, which is a term I borrowed from Timothy Leary. It means pretty much the same as gloss in sociology or system of abstractions in general semantics, your way of organizing the billions of signals that your brain is receiving every minute can be called your gloss on the world or your system of abstractions. Uh, there are various other names in the social sciences. Your umwelt, if you want to be ethological about it. Every animal has its own umwelt. A dog does not see the same world that a praying mantis sees. A fish does not perceive the same world that a chimpanzee perceives. A chimpanzee does not perceive the same world that Dan Quayle, no, a chimpanzee and Dan Quayle perceive the same world, but a chimpanzee and a, uh, you got my microphone? Not just yet. So every, every organism has its own umwelt or gloss or reality tunnel. And that was his reality tunnel of what he saw coming through the hall to get to the elevator. Now, how many people noticed things that were not on his list? Hold your hands up real high. If you noticed anything at all that's not on his list, did you notice any colors? Keep your hands up, please. Did you notice any colors? Did you notice people? Uh, did you notice temperature? Keep your hands up. Now look around. Practically everybody noticed things that he didn't notice, even though he noticed more things than any, anybody else uh, was willing to claim they had noticed. Uh, so we all create our own reality tunnel. Second by second, we decide which of the billions of signals impacting on our brain we're gonna pay attention to, and which ones we're going to remember and which ones we're going to forget quickly. And uh, if you really understand this, if you really hang on to this insight, 
It's a very simple uh, experiment, uh, uh, one of the simplest experiments in psychology. There are hundreds of other experiments that demonstrate the same truth in more complicated ways. This is a very simple way of demonstrating it. We all create our own reality tunnel. Once you understand that, you know the answer to the Zen koan, who is the master who makes the grass green? Now that you know the answer to the, that koan, you can go up to a Zen master and be pronounced enlightened right away. So already you got your money's worth. <laughs> well, you gotta understand it fully. You gotta understand it with your guts. You don't just understand it intellectually the way you are creating the world in which you live. Uh, what's, what's with the microphone? You got it? Yeah. Okay. About this piece of chalk. On both ends, not exactly pointed. Several flat planes on each end, making a point. It's fairly light. Has a glare. It feels chalky. About an inch and a half. The chips on the chalk itself, you can start to see things. <laughs> Smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so that's walking inside. And I think I'm stuck. Uh, uh, if, I, if this were a workshop, uh, I'd let him go on quite a bit longer, but since it's only a lecture, I will accelerate this demonstration a little. It works no matter how long you take on it. He tried to tell us all about the chalk. Uh, would you take a look and see if he succeeded? Can you think of anything about the chalk he didn't tell us? The surface is porous. The surface is porous. Hey, where's the microphone? Did I ever get what? Oh. Uh -uh. The surface is porous. It feels lighter in my hand than I expected it would. It feels lighter than you'd expect. Um, it's been used. It's been used. <laughs> it's not virgin. It's not brand new. Okay. It leaves a residue on the fingers of anyone who handles it. Let me know when the microphone is ready, somebody. <laughs> Can you think of anything else that we haven't learned about the chalk yet? Breaks. It breaks easily. Okay, I think we can no longer call it the chalk. Uh, we have to call it the chalks, or some kind of plural. Hey, we, somebody's trying to give me a hard time. How's the mic coming? <laughs> Tell us some more about the chalk. Uh, you can all hear me now? Now it's too loud. We were attempting to learn all about the chalk, and as I walked through the audience, everybody I uh, uh, asked found something new to say about the chalk. Uh, how long do you think it would take before people ran out of new things to say about the chalk? <laughs> Never. Not in love. We already did. Well, we didn't. We didn't even get into the economics of it. How did the chalk get here? Somebody manufactured it. Somebody packaged it. Somebody shipped it. An uh, open center bought it. Uh, to say you all about the chalk, we got to know a great deal about our economic system to understand how the chalk got here. Uh, we don't know anything about the sex lives of the workers in the chalk factory, <laughs> or is it a chalk mine? I'm not, I'm not even sure about that. Uh, we don't know the whole history of this chalk uh, at the Open Center. Who used it before me? Was it used by Timothy Leary? 
Was it used by uh, Terence McKenna? It might have a very good, maybe it was used by the magnificent Gene Houston. Uh, if, if so, it's probably still got powerful karmic vibrations of it. Uh, we could go on and on, and we never run out of things to say about the chalk. We can always discover more about it because among other things, the chalk is changing all the time we're talking about it. It changed from one piece to two pieces while we were talking about it. Uh, if we went on investigating it, we'd need to bring in scientific instruments, look at it through a microscope. Maybe we'd want to get an electron microscope and really get down to the deep structure of it. And then we could run a lot of chemical tests and then we could go into the geology of how chalk appeared on this planet, which would take us into the whole history of uh, the Earth, which would bring us into cosmology and how the universe evolved, and we still wouldn't have said all about this piece of chalk, right? Okay. <clears throat> so you come through a hall, you make a reality tunnel, and that's your hall, it's nobody else's hall. You start examining chalk and you make your own reality tunnel. We put all our reality tunnels together, and we still they still don't include all about the chalk. Let's summarize this with a little diagram. This is the bottom of a parabola. It's not a mathematically exact parabola because I don't have the tools to make a mathematically exact parabola, but it will do for a Friday night in New York. Uh, the a parabola goes on to infinity. The break-off line is there to indicate that the parabola continues off the blackboard and keeps on going to infinity in both directions. Those of you who remember any high school trigonometry remember that much. A parabola goes on to infinity. Uh, this represents the process level of the universe. And anything we can pick out of the process level comes out of this infinite flux and is tangled up in the infinite flux to know all about the chalk we got to know all about economics and all about geology and all about cosmology and all about chemistry and all about physics. And so if we try to isolate one part and analyze it, that part is always just a reality tunnel lifted out of the infinite flux, like everybody lifted their own reality tunnel out of the experience of passing through the hall downstairs. Now, I don't know if the universe is infinite in space-time or finite. Uh, there's a lot of things I don't know. There are more things I don't know than there are things I do know. Uh, I think that's uh, what keeps me young. I've noticed people who know everything get old very fast. Once you know everything, brain activity ceases. <laughs> the brain has nothing to excite it. And once brain activity ceases, that's the med current medical definition of death. You'll find it exemplified in the Vatican. <laughs> the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. And uh, the, the Objectivists uh, and a few other similar groups. Uh, those of us who don't know everything are continually learning and that, that keeps life interesting. Believe it or not, you don't have to take acid every day. If you just realize how ignorant you are, the whole world turns into an acid trip. <laughs> Copy that down, it's the most profound thing I'm gonna say all night. <laughs> uh, 
so out of this infinite flux, we create our own reality tunnels, which are all different. They're all individualized out of a piece of chalk, out of the experience of passing through a hall. Um, uh, let's try uh, another experiment. When I say go, uh, everybody uh, close your eyes and see how many different sounds you hear until I say stop. Is that clear? Okay, I just want to make sure it's clear before I get you started. Sometimes I say stop and it turns out people are doing an entirely different uh, exercise. <laughs> You're just supposed to listen to sounds and see how many different sounds you hear. Okay, close your eyes, you can listen better that way. <laughs> Stop. Uh, how many, uh, would you tell us the sounds you heard? And a nice loud voice so they can hear you in the back. I want to see somebody else struggle with the effort to be heard in the back of this room like I've been struggling with it. Okay, uh, baby crying several times. Did you hear him? No. You see how hard it is? <laughs> baby crying. Um, my own breathing. Uh, other people's breathing. You pouring the water, placing the canister down again. Uh, people walking in the hall down there. I don't know where exactly it came from. Um, and some people back there. Somebody put through a buck. Um, people fumbling with, I don't know, pens or something. I couldn't exactly identify what it was. Uh, you walking around with like rustling of whatever is rustling up there. Um, laughter. Okay. Uh, how many people heard things that he didn't hear? Hold your hands up high. Now everybody look around. Third demonstration. We all create our own reality tunnel. Everybody is living in a reality tunnel that, based on where they are in space-time. And if I were doing a longer, if this were a workshop, I would give you some demonstrations that's based on your whole life history up until now. A shy person lives in a different world than a confident person. A masochist lives in a different world than a sadist. A man lives in a different world than a woman, etc., etc., etc. And so the world we perceive is uh, is not the real world in the sense of common sense or classical philosophy. The world we see is an interaction between us and an infinite flux. And that world we see, our personal reality tunnel, we are the principal artist who created it. We are the architect, the artist, the director, the writer of the screenplay, the photographer. Whatever metaphor you want to use, we're creating these reality tunnels we experience. Now notice I did not say we are creating reality. That's going a little bit too far. I don't know any way to prove you create reality. It seems like a meaningless statement to me, but you definitely create your own reality tunnel, your own gloss on reality. That's, that's definitely uh, demonstrable by hundreds and hundreds of demonstrations besides the ones I just showed you. Now, that last little demonstration of listening to sounds, how long did that take? 45 seconds. <clears throat> Whoops. Wait a minute, I just lost something. Where the hell does this go? <laughs> this one goes over here, right? 
okay. Uh, 45 seconds. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. I missed you. One minute. Okay, now we'll uh, take, how many agree that it's 45 seconds? That's about four. How many agree it was 30 seconds? That looks like 12. How many think it was one minute? That's, uh, that's, about, that's about 20. Okay, anybody uh, think it's less than 45 seconds? Uh, less than 30 seconds? Okay, that's three for less than 30 seconds. <laughs> How many think it was longer than one minute? Uh, that's about, oh, let's get them, uh, all of them. How much longer? A minute and 23 seconds. A minute? Okay. One minute, 23. Uh, yes? 90 seconds. One minute, 30 seconds. Three minutes? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Any others? <laughs> okay, we got less than 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a minute, a minute and a half approximately, and as much as three minutes. I think that makes it a little bit clearer. Who is the master who makes the grass green? Who creates the reality tunnel that you experience as reality? Okay, uh, everything we perceive as a reality tunnel, a cross-section, it does not include all. You can't say all about a piece of chalk. You can't say all about the hall downstairs. And believe it or not, in spite of the newspapers, you can't say all about Soviet Russia. You can't say all about Nicaragua. You can't say all about the Christian religion. You can't say all about the history of Hinduism. You can't say all about anything. There's always more that can be added because all of our reality tunnels are pulled out of an infinite flux that doesn't seem to have any end. And its aspects, even if it is finite in space-time, its aspects are infinite. You can always notice more aspects, especially if you get new instruments. Now, you all know who you are, I trust. Is there anybody here who has serious doubts about who they are? Uh, <laughs> you came to the right place. <laughs> no. no, I am trying to break you of the habit of relying on artificial uh, standards. I want you to realize you are living in your own reality tunnel that you are creating, and uh, you got the, the, the mechanical time on the watch is totally irrelevant to your living experience. What you all just experienced, except for the lady who had three minutes, uh, was the activities of the short time mob. Uh, the short time mob are extraterrestrial invaders who were discovered by William Burroughs one day in Tangier. <laughs> Uh, this is, I forget which of Burroughs' books this is in, but he tells how he got up one morning, had a little breakfast, wrote a letter, wandered downtown, dropped the letter off at American Express, stopped and had a cognac, came back home. It was three in the afternoon. 
where the hell did the whole day go? <laughs> they figured out the short time mob and moved in on Tangier. The short time mob goes around, and when people aren't paying attention, they steal some of their time. <laughs> so we're losing time all the time, and the short time mob is busy piling up all this extra time. They may live forever, because all the rest of us are letting our time be, be stolen away because we're not paying attention. If you paid enough attention, your reality tunnel would get bigger and bigger and more and more complicated until finally you'd start sounding like an acid head. Everything is uh, everything, you know? Uh, uh, everybody has a view of themselves. Uh, a good view or a bad view. There are basically four uh, views which uh, Timothy Leary defined in the interpersonal grid that he created in 1958. Friendly strength, friendly weakness, hostile weakness, hostile strength, <coughs> which Eric Byrne renamed in much more vivid language. I'm okay, you're okay. <laughs> and I'm not okay, but you're okay. And I'm not okay, and nobody else is okay either. And I'm okay, but none of you mothers is okay. And uh, by, by and large, if you study uh, people carefully enough, you'll see most people, most of the time, are playing one of those four games. And that's our view of ourselves. I'm okay in a world that isn't okay. Or I'm okay uh, uh, in, a, in a world that's also okay or I'm not okay, but there are a lot of people who are okay, and they'll tell me what to do if I approach them real nice. Uh, that's known as the passive-aggressive personality. Uh, and then there's the I'm not okay, and nobody else is okay either. Those are the guys who appear on page four of the tabloids. They have born to lose tattooed on their arm, and you don't want to read the details of what they got arrested for. <laughs> Uh, so we all have a vision of ourselves. That's our reality tunnel of ourselves. Now, anybody who's ever had a relationship, as they say nowadays, uh, you, you discover at some stage in the relationship that the party you're having the relationship with doesn't know you at all. They have an entirely different reality tunnel of you. You ever notice that? Most relationships go bust when that's discovered. Some, some survive. So, well, okay, she doesn't know me. I'll teach her to know me. Maybe she'll still like me. That's an optimistic uh, approach. That's I'm okay. If your basic program is I'm not okay, it's thank God she doesn't know me. She still thinks I'm okay. Uh, <clears throat> or vice versa. He thinks I'm okay. I'll let him go on thinking that. Uh, then uh, you go into the bank and you want a loan to buy a car. They have an entirely different reality tunnel on you. Uh, what, whatever your sexual partner thinks about you is totally irrelevant to the bank. They look at a bunch of figures and a bunch of charts and a whole bunch of credit report, a whole bunch of things you didn't even know were ever recorded about you that are in computers somewhere. They may even access the CIA computer and pull something out. Marched in a peace demonstration in 1968 at which two policemen were hit by a sock full of shit. Oh, he was one of those jippies. We're not going to give him a car loan. And you don't even know that's what they made the decision on. And then, uh, and then um, Pat Robertson 
Lennon might uh, come through here. Uh, he would look around and he would size you up immediately into two groups. Uh, the good, God-fearing people whose pockets are easy to empty <laughs> and the goddamn atheists who won't give you a dollar. <laughs> and he'd go to work on the good, God-fearing people right away because he has a different reality tunnel and a different way of classifying. I, I suspect most of you here would be classified by Pat Robertson as a bunch of goddamn atheists. Unless, is there anybody here who ever sent Pat Robertson any money? No, you see, you're a bunch of goddamn atheists. If you had the fear of the Lord, you'd send, uh, Jesus needs money, don't you ever turn on Pat Robertson? Jesus needs money every week. You think you got money problems? Turn on Pat Robertson, you'll find out Jesus has problems much worse than yours. Every week he's got Pat out there asking for more money for him. And so there's the you, there's the reality tunnel, which is made up of your self-knowledge. Then there's the reality tunnel of your lover or spouse or whatever. There's the reality tunnel of your mother. There's the reality tunnel of your father. There's the reality tunnel of Pat Robertson. There's the reality tunnel of the bank that you're trying to get a loan from. Uh, there's the reality tunnel of your boss, if you happen to have a, that kind of job where you got a boss. <laughs> Uh, there's the reality tunnel of the beggars on the street out there who seize you up as you come along and decide, can I get money out of this one or is this one of the hopeless cases that never gives anything? Uh, they have a way of judging people. They fit you into uh, who's the likely uh, mark and who's the type who's going to say, get a job, you beatnik scum. And uh, they, they, they're pretty good at guessing which response they'll get. Uh, which is the real you? Well, certainly not the you that you know, because uh, if there's one thing that's become and get clear in every school of psychology, no matter what approach they take, behaviorist, Freudian, Jungian, uh, Sullivanian, neo-humanist, existential therapy, Gestalt, whatever approach they take, one conclusion that always emerges is our knowledge of ourselves is fantastically imperfect. We are, uh, we are a species given to tremendous illusions and delusions about ourselves. Now, there may be somebody here to who, who's the exception, who really does understand themselves totally. That, that, uh, in an infinite universe, that could happen. But the odds are staggeringly against it. It's like um, when I was in high school, I had a classmate named Sven Christ. Uh, really? And uh, he told me, there's a lot of people in the Scandinavian countries who have Christ as a last name. And then I began to discover that Hispanics often have Jesus as a first name. And uh, so I wasn't too surprised knowing that most Americans are not Hispanics and don't pronounce Spanish correctly. Uh, when I heard somebody on the radio recently saying that he actually met somebody named Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, of course, uh, you know, this, is the, this is the great melting pot of the world and all that, you know. Uh, a certain number of Hispanics are gonna marry a certain number of Scandinavians, and eventually you're gonna get Jesus Christ, <laughs> which uh, most Americans are gonna pronounce Jesus Christ. And uh, since Harry is one of the most popular names in the Western world, uh, eventually you're gonna get Jesus Harry Christ or Jesus H Christ somewhere. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, uh, one of these nights, I'm going to be doing this illustration and somebody in the audience is gonna stand up and say, yeah, 
Uh, my name is Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> but I am not looking forward to that uh, with great expectation. There are high probabilities and low probabilities, and that's a rather low probability. Although it gives you some sense of what I mean by the infinite, in the sense of a parabola being infinite, if you realized if the universe was infinite and I went on giving a lecture every night, there would come a night in which every man in the audience was named Jesus H. Christ. That would have to happen mathematically in an infinite universe. Now, so the women don't feel slighted, there would have to be a night in which every woman in the audience was named Mary Christ. So the audience would be made up of Jesus and Mary Christ, Jesus and Mary Christ, Jesus and Mary Christ. What a great audience to work to, you know. No matter what I said, it would be blasphemous. Uh, the strange thing about infinity is that that night, the Jesus H. Christ and Mary, or the Jesus and Mary Christ night, in an infinite universe, that would happen an infinite number of times. Really. Uh, look, it, look it up in any book on uh, the theory of the infinite, any mathematical book. Uh, but in, uh, in practice, I don't expect to find Jesus H. Christ in my audience very soon. <clears throat> and I don't expect to find anybody who really knows themselves thoroughly. When I was 42, I remember it quite distinctly the day that it dawned on me. I dropped 500 mics that morning. No, uh, no, I, I, I was doing yoga that day. It's, that's, uh, doesn't that sound more respectable? I, I was doing my yoga exercises when suddenly I realized with a thunderous, satori-like, lightning-like flash of insight that I had been an idiot all my life. Uh, all through, and I thought, Jesus, all through my 30s, I thought I was cured. I thought I was only an idiot in my 20s and my teens. And I was actually an idiot all through my 30s, too. It absolutely blew me over. You know, a revelation like that. Me? I thought I was one of the smartest people on the planet. You mean I'm a schmuck? You mean I've been fucking up almost everything I've done in my whole life? Almost all my opinions were based on inadequate knowledge. All my prejudices were as silly as the prejudices of the people in Kathmandu or Venezuela or Ireland. And uh, I started to grow up. I realized I gotta be more careful. I gotta think more carefully. I can't follow groupthink. I can't follow what all the other people of the sub of my subculture are thinking. I gotta pick each case carefully and analyze it so I won't go on being an idiot forever. And I can't follow all the mechanical emotional trips I've always followed, the knee-jerk reactions. So I'm becoming mature. And boy, it was great for a couple of years. And then suddenly I was 50. And I looked back and I realized I'd been an idiot all through my 40s, too. I'd just been a more careful idiot. Some of, the, some of the more obnoxious types of idiocy were a little bit coming under control. But basically, I was still an idiot. And uh, at 55, I looked back and I realized I was, I'd still been an idiot through most of my 50s. What do you mean by idiot? Um, <laughs> I mean somebody who's not as smart as I am now. <laughs> of course, I have, I, have high, I have high hopes that when I hit 60, I will be able to look back and say, boy, was I an idiot in 1990. Because if I can say that sincerely, that means I will have learned something.
in the interim because you got to learn something to be able to see that you were an idiot before <laughs> before you learned something new. And uh, fortunately, uh, despite my growing recognition of my own idiocy, I have noticed that I'm pretty shrewd in some ways, and I make a pretty good living entertaining people and teaching science and mysticism and whatnot, so I have some talents, so I don't go around feeling I'm not okay. My feeling is that I'm okay, I'm an idiot, but most other people are idiots too, so I don't have to feel too bad about being an idiot. Uh, besides, the Gary Jeff schools teach there are only two types of people on this planet, objectively hopeless idiots and subjectively hopeless idiots. <laughs> the objectively hopeless idiots don't know that they're idiots. They're the ones who know all about everything, like the Vatican and the other groups I mentioned. And then there's the subjectively hopeless idiots like me, who realize we don't really know a hell of a, we hardly know anything. We're just beginning to learn how to learn something. And we're only subjectively hopeless idiots because we might actually learn something. The objectively hopeless idiots will never learn anything because they think they already know everything. <clears throat> but getting back to saying all about yourself, there's a guy named Jeff Love who does seminars, two-day seminars, that consist of dividing the group up into couples and each couple sits down facing each other and takes turn trying to say all about themselves. <coughs> According to Jeff Love, this produces enlightenment experiences in a high percentage of the class. This produces enlightenment because if you spend two days trying to say all about yourself, you eventually realize you can't say all about yourself. You get the same insight that's in this diagram, you realize that you extend to infinity, just like the chalk extends to infinity just like the hallway downstairs extends to infinity. You can never know all about yourself. And the people who have, the people come around and say you're an idiot, uh, the you that they see is a real part of you, even though it's a part you don't like to recognize. And the people who come around and say, oh, wise guru, tell me the answer to all my problems. Uh, you think they're assholes, but the you that they're seeing probably exists too. You're just not in touch with it most of the time. Uh, they, they can find it somehow. I wish I could find it more often. Uh, every you that somebody believes in is a real you. At least it's real to them, and it's made up of a few parts of the real you, since the real you is infinite, made up mostly, uh, frequently of parts you don't recognize at all. Uh, perhaps this would be clearer if we added another level, the verbal level. Now, here is the infinite uh, flux of being, the process level of the universe. Here is the reality tunnels our nervous system creates, which are very finite compared to the infinity out there. And then here are the words that we pin onto the, object, uh, onto the reality tunnels our nervous system creates. Now, as soon as you start putting words on, like door or hall or wall, uh, the universe starts to change. The universe starts to look like our words. Uh, there are experiments in perception psychology uh, where you have a room that's not built like an ordinary room at all. All the, all the angles are different, yet it looks like an ordinary room. Children who cannot speak a language see it as the cockeyed room it is, as demonstrated by the way they act in the room. They know that everything is slanted. People who have language are completely taken in by the illusion. 
because in the, in the perceptual process, you see the room, you say walls, doors, ceiling, floor, and you project your ideas of ceilings, floors, walls, and so on, and you create a room that isn't there at all. Uh, so language always creates part of our reality tunnel. So every reality tunnel is made out of the fact that our nervous system edits what's coming in, orchestrates it according to our life history, and uh, then uh, redesigns it according to the language we know. A mathematician would give an entirely different description of the chalk than a chemist would. A chemist would give an entirely different description than an economist would. Uh, a poet would have an entirely different attitude towards the chalk than a painter. A uh, musician uh, would come up with something entirely unique. What does the chalk sound like if you drop it on a drum? Or, or what, what would happen if you ran the chalk across the violin very rapidly? Some idea like that that would never occur to a chemist or a painter. <clears throat> so the language we speak creates a great deal of the world we perceive. And uh, the I'm okay uh, uh, scenario uh, tends to produce happy, creative, productive people. The I'm not okay scenario tends to produce masochistic and uh, easily victimized people. Uh, since there are a number of predators at large on this planet, the I'm not okay script is very widely preached. The more people who believe I'm not okay, the more marks there are out there who are easy to fleece. And therefore, uh, there are large organizations devoted to, ex to explaining to people that they are not okay. Again, uh, if, you ever if you ever turn on Pat Robertson, you'll find out very damn fast you're not okay. You can, you can actually send money into this motherfucker every week and you're still not okay. He goes into his trance, he, you know, everybody has their own way of contacting God. You know, voodoo has some really great dances. The Buddhists have their meditations and they don't even use the word God, they say that which is uh, uh, the essence of things. Uh, Pat, Pat Robertson's way of contacting God is to imitate a man having a severe attack of constipation. <laughs> and then God starts to broadcast to him, and the first thing God says is, you're all a bunch of no good shits. Uh, words to that effect. And uh, the only way you're ever gonna be forgiven is if you send Jesus as much money as he needs that week. And if you're dumb enough to do it, you find out next week it wasn't enough, you're still no good. And uh, this business has been going on for several thousand years. It's known as organized religion. And it works very well because uh, the ordinary process of growing up in a human community uh, largely consists of having your parents follow you around saying, don't put that in your mouth, don't touch that, that'll kill you, stay away from that, until everybody has the general feeling either I'm not okay or the universe is not okay. And so it's very easy to persuade them the problem is them because the universe is much bigger. It can't be that the universe is not okay, it must be that I'm not okay. And then you can get them to pay you a, a weekly stipend to try to cure their not okayness. This has been so popular with so many religions that it's now been secularized and it's called psychotherapy. <laughs> 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 
the uh, Nasruddin, the you've all heard of Nasruddin, the wisest man in Islam. He uh, once went riding through Baghdad on his donkey as fast as he could travel. The people came out of their houses and said, Nasruddin, what are you looking for? Uh, he yelled back, I'm looking for my donkey. <laughs> <sighs> That never gets much of a laugh. I still go on using it because it's a profoundly, it's, it's one of the great Sufi stories. Uh, another version of it, a more complicated one, a farmer hires Nasruddin to take 10 donkeys to the market and sell them. And Nasruddin gets a 10% commission for doing the job of driving the donkeys to the market. So Nasruddin starts out in the morning with the 10 donkeys riding on one. After a while, he starts to worry he might have lost one, so he counts, and there's only nine donkeys. So he jumps off his donkey, and he runs around the road feeling and checking, and there are 10. So he gets back on his donkey, rides for a couple of hours, starts to worry, and counts, and there's only nine. So he jumps off, walks around, feeling and counting, and there's 10. He's back on his donkey, rides a while, starts to worry again, and there's only nine. He gets off, walks around, feels them all, there are 10. So around sunset, Nasruddin arrives in the market, driving nine donkeys in front of him and carrying one on his back. <laughs> <laughs> the donkey uh, represents what uh, all schools of mysticism are seeking and trying to find. Uh, what in Zen Buddhism is called the master who makes the grass green. Uh, we are all creating our own gloss, our own reality tunnel, our own system of abstractions, and we're all going around blaming it on somebody else. The first thing you've got to do to learn how to make a better reality tunnel is to realize who created the reality tunnel you're in now. Of course, you don't take all the blame for it. That'll end up with an I'm not okay trip. Uh, you're doing it, but people taught you to do it. You gotta find out which, pro which verbal programs they gave you that put you in a lousy reality tunnel and then work your way out of them gradually. It's not, uh, it's not something you learn all at once. It's a matter of knowing this for years and working on it continually until you finally get to the point of the first great realization, as Gary Jeff called it, that's when you suddenly sit up and say, what an idiot I've been. <laughs> and then you're, then you're on the path. Then after that, you discover your idiocy more and more frequently, which means you have more and more freedom to revise your idea of who you are, who other people are, what the world is, and uh, you eventually get to the point where you realize whatever you say it is, it isn't, because, uh, everybody pinch this part of your thumb. This is not an exercise in masochism. You don't have to pinch so hard you bleed or anything like that. Just pinch it enough that you feel it. Now, everybody say the word pinch. pinch. Now, everybody write the word pinch on a piece of paper. Those of you who have paper. <laughs> okay. I'll write it up here for those who don't have paper. <coughs> now, everybody say pinch. <laughs> Sound waves. Look at this. Squiggles. Now do this again. You can never say all about anything 
And any word you do say about anything is not the thing. The word is not the sensory experience of your own private reality tunnel. And your own private reality tunnel is not the infinity in which we live, the infinity within or the infinity without. Uh, you can arrive at, uh, this is called the structural differential and was invented by a Polish mathematician named Alfred Korzybski. Uh, you can arrive at all of these conclusions strictly from the uh, propositions of uh, logical positivism and the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. And once you have arrived at all of these conclusions I've been uh, trying to bring out tonight, you find you're in exactly the same position as the Zen Buddhists, the Sufis, and a lot of the other Oriental mystics. Because you recognize there is an infinity, that the infinity is ineffable, that you can never say all about anything, and that most people are walking around brainwashed by verbal maps that have very little connection with any kind of reality on any level whatsoever. And uh, you do not feel any contempt for them because you realize how they get in that mess and you realize you are in that mess yourself most of the time too. You only wake up occasionally and see beyond all the verbal hypnotic lines that control us all. And uh, I like to do this, uh, I have a bunch of standard lectures, I like to do this one as often as possible because uh, most people having it come this way in the form of uh, mathematics and little psychological demonstrations, it uh, seems more clear than if a guru says, you must find the infinite within, you must stop judging people, you must learn to get past judgment and go into a flow and accept. And, and we've heard all that and it doesn't make much sense to most of us. Uh, when we start looking at it from the scientific point of view, it begins to click, it does make sense, and then we know what they're talking about. The problem is the Orient has not had many good translators. And I think now is the time to take a break. And then I'll have a question and answer. Oh my God, I gotta get unhooked and rehooked. Thanks for tuning into this program from Better Listen. Please visit betterlisten.com for more information about this program and the opportunity to share your comments and feedback with others.